0: The following is a lesson in a series on life, liberty, and property brought to you by Republic Keepers, and is presented and discussed by the Attorney General of the Republic State of Texas, Chaplain Raymond. This lesson discusses a book by the same name, Life, Liberty, and Property, written by Charles A. Wiseman, of which can be purchased at his website, seek-info.com, at amazon.com, or small bookstores such as Brave New Books in Austin, Texas. The ISBN number for this book is 0 9668921 9 4 Life, Liberty, and Property is an educational series for sovereign souls on the dry land, and the information about fundamental law and the unwritten Constitution cannot be utilized by those individuals that are domiciled in the District of Columbia. To understand your domicile status, please review the Two Constitutions, Two Domiciles document on republickeepers.com. We hope you enjoy this lesson on life, liberty, and property.
1: Okay, conforming to the law of God. Excuse me. Throughout the legal history of the American colonies, there was an obvious and continuous recognition and assertion of the law of God and the inherent rights derived from God. Colonial legislation is inundated with specific laws and declarations requiring the adherence to the laws of God as found in the Bible and nature. Governments were formed upon the law of God and hence could not act contrary to such law. The frequent claims of rights derived from God gave additional support to the authority of the divine law, many of the precepts that the early settlers added to our common law—that is, to the law of the land—were laws that were based upon the law of God. <clears throat> In the early America law, it was found on a founded on a desire to move from the written enactments of Parliament to fix. Standards of justice. Now, I suspect that's an important phrase to remember. That is to say, to a higher law which prescribes an unchanging mode of justice. This was a major theme in colonial America. The concept of a law of nature superior to written laws, embracing a body of moral principles recognized always and everywhere as binding, was by no means peculiar to the colonial acts. This natural law was considered as comprising the instincts of nature, often identified by the will of God and Judge Gentium and the moral law of the scriptures. Many early English legal scholars, such as John Locke, had a profound impact on American thought. Locke claimed that the word of God has fundamental law which is to be utilized as a rule of righteousness to influence our lives and as a concrete means of checking arbitrary government. In the great constitutional conflict of the 17th century, both parties drew their arguments from the law of God and the law of nature upon these foundations they superimposed the structure of the common law thus in 1604 the speaker of the house of commons in england declared laws whereby the ark of this government hath ever been steered are of three kinds the first common law grounded or drawn from the laws of god the law of reason and the law of nature not mutable. The second, the positive law, founded, changed, and altered by and through the occasions and policies of time. And third, customs and usages practiced and allowed with time's approbation without known beginning. The broadest Authority was bestowed upon the law of God and the law of reason by all political groups accepting them as the fundamental law of the kingdom which no act of parliament could contravene. There thus was a well-recognized distinction between the immutable laws of God and the mutable acts of the parliament the king would be obeyed so long as the thing commanded be not against God's word, as stated in the Leyden Agreement of Virginia in 1618. From the beginning of the colonies, there was a feeling and practice of independence from English control, laws, and supervision. In defense of its apparent non-English policy, the General Court of Massachusetts in 1646 declared, and whereas we have no laws contrary to the law of God and of right reason, and which the learned in those laws have anciently and still do hold forth as the fundamental basis of their laws, displaying the inadequacies of the laws of Parliament the General Court of Connecticut in 1665 decided that the colony could resort to the Word of God in the absence of specific law. The common trend of the 17th century American legislatures was to follow traditional Elizabethan theory in writing laws to criminalize sin and encourage righteousness thereby having people conform to the dictates of God. It was but a logical step to assert, as was done in colonial America, that where the the authority exercised by the executive or the legislature exceeds the bounds of the law god, these acts of these bodies are ipso facto void. Thus, the acceptance of the law of God as the law of the land established it as an immutable fundamental law which would forever limit and direct acts of government. The early Americans embraced that medieval concept as supported by the Magna Carta, that the fundamental law which included the law of God could merely be declared but not changed by statutory enactment. The early Americans gave concrete application to the idea, stated by Richard Hooker, that human laws must be made according to the general laws of nature and without contradiction to any positive law of scripture. Otherwise they are ill made. The law of nature was closely associated with the Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic, I am having trouble with the word, Deuteronomic Code, as John Davenport declared in 1669, the law of nature is God's law. It was no less certain that the law of God was part of the common law. In all aspects of law and government, early Americans gave credence to the law of God, and to assure it was applied properly, the clergy was looked to for aid and guidance. Many colonial towns and providences followed the doctrine of reformers, such as Cartwright and Knox, who maintained that the ministers, should teach the magistrates how to exercise civil jurisdiction according to the word of God, Many of the colonial founding fathers, such as Thomas Hooker of Hartford, believed that the practice of the early Hebrew church, as directed by God, embodied a perfect rule for the government of all men and all duties. Many similar statements from the early colonial fathers revealed their belief that legal precepts found in the Old Testament might serve as general guidelines for colonial policy. In Massachusetts, although ministers could not act as public officials, they advised lawmakers from time to time and had a substantial say in the legal affairs of the colony. A most notable example that early Americans believed that justice should be dispensed according to the Word of God was exhibited by the commonly enacted capital laws, which prescribed the death penalty for offenses as prescribed in the Bible. The Old Testament thus provided the colonists with specific legal concepts and vocabulary upon which they could draw to achieve their mission of constructing a theocratic commonwealth. In the Plymouth Colony, a rise in crime occurred some two decades after its founding. Governor William Bradford reported that in 1642, capital punishment was inflicted upon the perpetrators according to ye Law, Leviticus 20.15 chapter 20, verse 15. Much of colonial law was marked by an attachment to Hebraic precepts. This reverence for biblical law led to its being held in the colonies as a pattern for legislation and a guide for judicial decisions. By this legal system, the rights of life, liberty, and property We're safe from government oppression. At the bedrock of American law is the various colonial laws, constitutions, and charters, the fundamental and organic law of the land. These provide overwhelming proof that the law of God was the basis of the law of the land. This idea was made evident in the Charter of New England in 1620, in which the intent of government was for the people, quote, to live together in the fear and true worship of Almighty God, Christian peace, and civil quietness with each other, whereby everyone may with more safety, pleasure, and profit enjoy that whereunto they shall attain with great pain and peril, unquote. Thus, the aim of government to provide for civil peace and enjoyment of civil individual rights um, cancel the word civil. Enjoyment of individual rights was best attained by having a godly government. For this to be so, the laws of God needed to be the bedrock of that government. In the government of the New Haven Colony of 1643, the free burgesses of each town or plantation were to choose fit and able men from amongst themselves being church members to be judges. The court of justice formed were to proceed according to the scriptures, which is the rule of all righteous laws and sentences. Such fundamental principles, foundational principles and documents support the idea that law and government was to conform to the law and will of God, did not exist to the contrary. Now remember, the government of New Haven Colony was uh, under the work of Roger Williams, who, whose main contribution was liberty of conscience. So he was not anti-freedom. And it meant for the ministers to impose any kind of tyranny. This section is Colonial Ministers on Liberty. Now here we have a series of quotes from the ministers. I'll just go through them. To better understand the theology that prevailed in colonial America, which aided the cause of freedom and independence, we will quote some ministers of that time. First, arbitrary and oppressive measures in the state would indeed dispirit the people and weaken the nerves of industry and in their consequences lead to poverty and ruins. That was Daniel Shute of Higgin, Mass, An Election Sermon of 1768. That's the first time I've noticed the name, Election Sermon. Now, the next one is Reverend Samuel West of Dartmouth, Mass, an election sermon in 1776. Unlimited submission and obedience is due to none but God alone. He has an absolute right to command. He alone has an uncontrollable sovereignty over us. Because He alone is unchangeably good. He never will, nor can require of us, consistent with His nature and attributes, anything which is not fit and reasonable. His commands are all just and good. Now, He is using the term sovereignty in terms of the heavenly sovereignty. The sovereignty, when we speak of it, for sovereign souls on the land, is the earthly sovereignty. And the sovereign is one who speaks directly to God. Next is Reverend Richard Salter of Mansfield, Connecticut, an election sermon of 1768. Quote, God never gives men up to be slaves till they lose their natural national virtue and abandon themselves to slavery. Unquote. Next, Noah Wells of Stamford, Connecticut, an election sermon in 1764. Quote, Civil government is absolutely necessary to public happiness, but without good laws and wholesome institution, government cannot subsist. At least, it can never answer those salutary purposes for which it was appointed. Quoting Samuel Cook of Cambridge, Mass, an election sermon in 1770: "The people." The collective body only have a right under God to determine who shall exercise the trust for the common interest and to fix the bounds of their authority. This is evidently the natural origin and state of all civil government, the sole end and design of which is not to ennoble a few and enslave the multitude, but the public benefit and good of the people, unquote. Charles Turner of Duxbury Mass, Election Sermon, 1773 While liberty is fruitful in trade, industry, wealth, learning, religion, and noblest virtue, all that is great and good and happy Slavery clogs every sublimer, sublimer movement of the soul, prevents everything excellent, and introduces poverty, ignorance, vice, and universal misery among a people. Unquote. John Tucker of Newberry Mass, Election Sermon, 1771 All men are naturally in a state of freedom, and have an equal claim to liberty. No one by nature, nor by any special grant from the great Lord of all, has any authority over another. All right, therefore, in any to rule over others, must originate from those they rule over and be granted by them. That we ought to mount and put on everybody's wall. John Tucker of Newberry Mass Election Sermon seventeen seventy one his is his same guy. Submission is due to all constitutional laws. Unlimited submission, however, is not due to government in a free state. There are certain boundaries beyond which submission cannot be justly required nor is therefore due. And that's another way of saying the law, the land, and due process of the law. Noah Wells of Stanford, Connecticut, General Assembly Sermon in 1764. The true patriot is one whose purse, as well as his heart, is open for the defense and support of his country. This is in a General Assembly session. So that sounds like a politician. The consequence, okay, Moses Parson of Newberry Falls Mass in Election Sermon, 1772. The consequences of an arbitrary tyrannical government are most distressing. When the will of the prince is the law of the subject, when life, liberty, and property lie at the mercy of a despot, such an administration of government is like an inundation which carries all before it. Samuel West of dartmouth Mass., an election sermon at Boston in 1776. Where tyranny begins, government ends. Jonathan Mayhew of Boston, had just a sermon in 1766. History affords no example of any nation, country, or people long free who did not take some care of themselves and endeavor to guard and secure their own liberties. Power of a grasping, encroaching nature and operating according to mere will whenever it meets with no balance, check, control, or opposition of any kind. Let me read that sentence again. Power is of a grasping, encroaching nature and operating according to mere will, whenever it meets with no balance, check, control, or opposition of any kind. That's sort of restating that maxim that says, if you fail to defend your rights, you have none. All power is originally from God and civil government, his institution. I'm sorry, this is from Benjamin Stevens of Kittery, Mass. Election Sermon, 1761. All power is originally from God, and civil government, his institution, and is designed to advance the happiness of his creatures. Civil power ought therefore ever to be employed agreeable to the nature and will of the Supreme Sovereign and guardian of all our rights. Next, Samuel West of Dartmouth, Mass., Election Sermon, 1776. The true design of civil government is to protect men in the enjoyment of liberty. Next, Simon Howard of Boston, Artillery Election Sermon, 1773 for men to stand fast in their liberty means in general resisting the attempts that are made against it in the best and most effectual manner they can. When anyone's liberty is attacked he is first to try gentle methods for his safety. And that concludes the the uh, lesson for today